one of the Well, Penny and I, she's not here. She'll miss this darn. Penny and I enjoy doing a lot of different kinds of things together. We read. Um, when they're long, boring kids' books, I skip pages. She doesn't know that. Um, but we enjoy reading. We play Legos together. We play a little game called Spot It that I let her win. Don't tell her that. But we do, and I can't believe I'm going to admit this here. We have this kind of weird thing we do. It's a show we watch. Maybe you've heard it or seen commercials. It's called Dr. Pimple Popper. Um, the rest of my family can't even stand to see the commercials for it. <laughs> Penny loves it, maybe more than I do. Dr. Pimple Popper is a, is a dermatologist in California. Um, she helps people resolve issues that have ca often caused them to stay at home, hiding away from the public, living out of the public eye for years, or maybe even just hiding while they're in public. There was one episode, I was trying to tell my wife that like, she doesn't really pop pimples. She does all kinds of other things. That's just the catchy title. There was one episode where this, um, you know, this attractive lady... Uh, I don't know, maybe in her 30s or 40s, um, she has these earlobes that are like hanging down this far because when she was younger, she thought it would be a good idea to stretch out her earlobes like some young people do. And now that she's a little bit older and is wanting to have a career, she's wanting to correct these dangling earlobes. She wants to undo what she had done. The challenge for Dr. Lee, the pimple popper, was getting that hole to close. You see, those parts of the ear had been growing apart for so long that just bringing them back together would not bring healing. So to restore the health of this lady, or at least the appearance of this lady, what Dr. Lee had to do was create a fresh wound so that when she brought the two sides together, true healing would take place. Sometimes I think the same kind of thing needs to happen to us, which brings us to Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. One of my favorite New Testament scholars um, always says that the reading of Scripture is the most authoritative part of any worship service. It's kind of downhill after that. So enjoy, enjoy this passage. I appeal to Euodia and to Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I say also to you, true companion, help them. They have struggled together in the gospel ministry along with me and Clement and my other co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. The first thing we're going to take a look at is this rift, this division. And then we're going to look at how Paul wants it restored. This is another text we have in Philippians about which we would love to know just a little bit more. Who are these two ladies, Euodia and Syntyche? 
The fact that Paul names them implies that they're important or prominent and probably leaders in the church of some sort. At the very least, their rift has become significant to the church. And the fact that he appeals to them both, literally it's, I appeal to Euodia and I appeal to Syntyche. The appeal is repeated to both, implies that they both share faults in this situation. We know that they were co-workers of Paul and others in the ministry of the gospel. This tells me that they once embraced the attitude that Paul has been describing throughout this letter, an attitude that puts the needs of others first and understands that all else pales in comparison to knowing Christ. But apparently something has changed. You see, if the dispute involved unorthodox doctrine or some kind of scandalous sinful behavior, Paul would not have hesitated to address it directly, as he does elsewhere. Just in Philippians alone, Paul has addressed several specific concerns that threaten the church. Remember those who preach the gospel out of envy and rivalry, hoping to stir up even more trouble for Paul. About them, Paul says he rejoices that the gospel is being preached. Remember those who oppose the Philippian believers. Paul says that the church's unity in the face of that opposition is a witness that the opposition is doomed. Remember those mutilators, those who want a sign in the flesh in which they can boast. Paul says such signs are liabilities and loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Remember those who mistakenly believe that Christians can be perfected in this life. Paul says that he strives and he strains and he struggles and that God will show them the error of their thinking. Remember those who fail to live as citizens of heaven, those who, whose minds are on earthly things. Paul says that their destiny is destruction. <clears throat> But he doesn't tell us what's going on between these two prominent women in the church. Reading between the lines a little and in light of Paul's boldness in tackling tough topics, I think these ladies are divided and perhaps trying to divide others by something that has nothing to do with doctrine or some kind of moral or sin issue. I would guess that the issue itself is minor, insignificant, but that the division the split, the rift, is major, influential, and harmful to the unity of the church. This is how it often happens, right? I mean, it's rarely essential historical orthodox doctrine that really divides us. Some peripheral doctrinal differences might mean that I go to a different church than my friend, but we're still friends. We can even be co-laborers or co-workers, even if we don't worship in the same building. Worship, of course, is never limited to a building. Differences of opinion over what the Bible says about things like baptism, the return of Christ, church government, the role of women, spiritual gifts, the age of the earth, I could go on and on, might send us to different parts of town on Sunday morning, if there were that option. 
And even though they may determine where my membership is, they're rarely the source of division like the one Paul and the Philippians are dealing with. I don't have a lot of experience with these kinds of division, but I have some. I've been in churches where long-term members and faithful parishioners have walked away because of changes to how the Lord's Supper is administered, because of the style of music, because of changes to the order of service. Often these divisions don't cause people to leave, at least with their feet. They stay, but the rift grows. A fresh wound, which would heal if the two sides could come together, scars over as the rift spreads. So that's the rift. Let's take a look at the restoration. The restoration that Paul is calling for between Euodia and Syntyche has three components. There's the appeal, the helper, and a reminder. The appeal that Paul makes to both is that they must agree in the Lord. This is no insignificant request. Paul never uses this kind of language lightly. In the Lord is the only realm in which any of us can agree in a significant way about significant things. Being in the Lord means that we can transcend all of the differences that divide us or that divide those who are not in the Lord. Things like race, economics, politics, social significance. Being in the Lord means that we have the power and the desire to follow Jesus, the Lord, as our example. When Paul refers to the Lord, it's not simply a name or a title. It's a radical statement that was the source of much of the persecution of the church by Rome. You see, to be Roman meant to confess that Caesar is Lord. To confess that Jesus was Lord was to confess that Caesar was not. Not only a theological statement, but a political one as well. To live as a citizen of heaven means that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Still today, I think it's a radical statement with all kinds of consequences and implication. You see, Paul knows that restoring this rift will be difficult. So he appeals to someone, someone he calls the true companion, we don't know who this is. Some people have, have proposed that it might be Epaphroditus who's bringing this letter from Paul back to Philippi. Others have argued that it could be Luke. There's some evidence that Luke stayed in Philippi, maybe during this time. But the truth is, we just don't know who it is. But we do know that this was a situation that required a helper. I think this is probably similar in effect to what Paul says in Galatians 6.1, where he says that when someone is discovered in some sin, the spiritual person should be involved in restoring that person. But he says they must do so in a spirit of gentleness, another word that shows up in this chapter. This is not easy. Most of us by nature don't want to get involved. You run the risk of becoming enemies of both sides. 
But the health and the testimony of the church is at stake because its unity is at risk when there are rifts like this. Paul follows this request for the true companion to help with a reminder. In fact, this might be the message the true companion is supposed to deliver. Euodia and Syntyche need to remember that they labored, they struggled, not only with Paul, but with each other in the gospel ministry. Again, we don't know what they are disagreeing about, but we do know that they have agreed before in the gospel, its establishment, its spread, its ministry for the benefit of the church and the good news both within and without. You know, the more I thought about this passage, the more I thought that this reminder might be more important than it might seem. Have you ever noticed the only times we manage to transcend our differences, and I mean just in a general sense as citizens of a community, as citizens of of a country, the only times when everyone seems to manage to transcend their differences are when something more important is going on. Uh, Unfortunately, it's usually some kind of tragedy, some kind of disaster. We see this every time our nation deals with some kind of disaster, a man-made disaster um, or a natural disaster. When people need rescued, we work together. We don't all of a sudden change our opinions and our convictions about things. There are a lot, of, a lot of things we have opinions and convictions about. And when tragedy strikes and people need rescued, we don't automatically just change our mind about those things, but we understand that those issues are insignificant in light of the rescue mission. I think we see this to some extent among Jesus' disciples. Among the twelve were two from completely opposite ends of the political spectrum. So far apart that I struggle to find a modern-day parallel to give to you. You have a zealot and a tax collector. The tax collector has sold out to Rome to line his own pockets. And the zealot's willing to kill to liberate Israel from oppressive Roman rule. You can't get much more extreme than those two political ideologies. But we have no evidence that Jesus ever addresses their politics, at least not directly. He never tells them who's right and who's wrong. On the pages of our Bible, they never discuss it. But surely they must have had some interesting campfire conversations. What we do know is they all found Jesus compelling, and they were all entrusted with the ministry of God's kingdom. And perhaps I like to think they were so busy doing his will and pondering his teachings that they simply didn't have the time to iron out their political differences. They were on a mission, his mission, But what do we see when their minds wandered to earthly things? 
we see the bickering. We see the arguing. We see some of the disciples arguing about how to spend the money or who's going to be the greatest. And I think we often exhibit the very same kinds of patterns. I'm convinced that many who leave the church, either with their feet or with their heart, do so because minor issues appear major, because nothing else is going on. In other words, if your church is just a social club, instead of a search and rescue team, then the style of music, the color of the carpet become important. When there's nothing else going on, switching from crackers to bread becomes important. But the reality is that churches will need new carpet. Churches will get new leadership, and this might mean a change in style, a change in order, a switch to a loaf of bread. And if your church finds its life, its identity, its purpose in its appearance or its traditions, then the call becomes, agree about the carpet. Agree about the style. Agree about the music. Rather than agree in the Lord. Yet if your church is trying to make Jesus as compelling and worthy of our loyalty as to others as someone else did for you. And if your church is feeding the hungry, taking care of the sick, providing for orphans and widows, using its resources to make disciples of all nations, then all of a sudden so many of those other issues become so insignificant. Another way to say this is the more we make of Jesus the less important so many of those things that divide us become. Amber and I lived in Galveston, Texas for three years, fall of 2001 to summer of 2004. I don't know if you know anything about Galveston. It's a barrier island on the Gulf. Um, really long, narrow, bunch of really long, narrow islands that kind of line the Texas coast there. It's about 40 miles or so from Houston. And uh, we moved there, and the very first week we were, we were there, we, we picked a church um, called Galveston Bible Church. If you're familiar with the Evangelical Free Church of America, Galveston Bible Church is an Evangelical Free Church. It still is. It was a great church in many ways. By their own estimation, they were strong on fellowship and weak on outreach and evangelism. I wouldn't say this church was a social club. But I think it leaned that way. The church experienced some of these rifts, I'm sure. But I wouldn't say anything that divided the church in any significant way. And the church landscape in the city of Galveston then was not the most prom promising. There were a few fairly large mainline denominational churches but very few churches that seem to care a whole lot about Jesus and his message. So from that perspective, there weren't a whole lot of options. But a hurricane changed all that. 
Hurricane Ike came through. We had to figure this out this morning, 2008. So we had been gone for four years. We were living, we had just moved to Nebraska. We had just uh, left Dallas, moved to Nebraska. Hurricane Ike came through and it changed the church landscape even more than it changed the physical landscape. When your church and your homes are flooded, no one cares about the carpet except to rip it out before the mold sets in. And I really don't know the details. We were far away when all of this happened. I do know that our former church became a resource center, providing food, shelter, and any kind of assistance anyone needed. Now about 15 years later, there's this thriving movement there. It's a partnership of churches from vastly different denominations. And they might not sing together on Sunday morning, but they work together throughout the week to bring Jesus to the community and to bring the community to Jesus. They might not worship in the same style, but they labor and they strive together in worship, in prayer, and in service, day in and day out. So the first command was for Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The second command we have in this passage is to rejoice in the Lord. So what, if any, is the connection between rejoicing in the Lord and agreeing in the Lord? Euodia and Syntyche are in Christ. They're in the Lord. So is Paul. So is Clement. So are the other workers that Paul mentions. They are all in Christ. They are all in the Lord. Their names are all in this book of life. What a cause for rejoicing. When's the last time you rejoiced in the Lord for anything at all? When I think of a church rejoicing, my mind goes immediately to the way one particular church does baptism. When we were in Old Harbor and had no church home, I watched church live on the internet. Uh, I watched several different churches from different traditions and enjoyed them all. One church in particular I found was uh, quite uh, encouraging, and I even exchanged some communication with their pastor. It turns out we even had some mutual friends. Um, this church is in Redlands, California, Southern California. It's called Trinity Church, and it also happens to be an evangelical free church. Um, and it, it's a really, really great church. Um, they do so much for their community. I still watch their service every week. Trinity Church practices uh, believers' baptism, and they do so in a very unique way, at least unique to me, that I think exemplifies what it means to rejoice. You see, they set aside part of their service for those who are going to be baptized, and they'll, they, they interview them. Um, it's, it's typically younger people, but sometimes it's kids and parents. And 
and whatever. Um, and they'll provide a time for them to, to share, to tell the congregation how they came to become a follower of Jesus, what that means to them, what they believe, and who shared Jesus with them. And then once they're done giving that public testimony, the worship just continues. The band plays on, the people sing. The baptismal pool is looks like it's kind of set into the stage. Now, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church where it was would have been like up here, in the middle of the top of the choir loft. This one's kind of set down into the stage, so you don't even really see the water. And as the band plays on and the people sing, uh, one of the pastors takes his place in the water. And then one at a time, these new followers of Jesus step down into the water. You can see them exchanging some words with the pastor, but you can't hear what they're saying. And again, this is behind the band. They exchange a few silent words with the pastor, and they're baptized. When they emerge from the water, everyone spontaneously cheers. doesn't matter where the song is or what else is going on. When someone symbolically rises from death to life, the church, the church cheers, the church rejoices. And in that moment, I hope, no one cares if the music's too loud, too modern, or too traditional. As they're rejoicing, I hope that no one cares if the song has too many words or not enough words, or if anyone is singing off key, they simply rejoice. It's hard to be divided when you are rejoicing. It's as if Paul is anticipating some pushback from these two women. It's as if they might be saying, but wait, Paul, you, you don't know what she... And Paul says, rejoice. Yeah, but she rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, but if you knew what she again, I say, rejoice. You have labored with me in the gospel. Your names are in the book of life and you have strived and strained to make sure that the names of many others have been added to that book as well. Keep doing that and rejoice. Would you pray with me? Lord, remind us to rejoice. Lord, I know recently how easy it is to get so caught up in what people think about me. To be stressed out by things that have absolutely zero to do with your gospel. and with the mission that you've given me. Lord, remind us all daily to rejoice, to know that if we are followers of you, then our names are in that book, and that you have given us a ministry that has absolutely nothing to do with so many of the things that divide the rest of the world. You've given us your spirit, the power, the desire, to follow you, to live as citizens of heaven, to put others first, to be servants, 
Lord, help us to make much of you. But all these things that vie for our attention, that can so easily distract us, would just pale in comparison. Lord, even, even some good things can distract us. Lord, but their loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing you. Lord, move in this church, move in our lives, in this community, collectively and individually in such a way that we could present to the watching world a Jesus that is compelling, a Jesus that is worthy of our loyalty to the extent that all of the other things that divide us, all of our differences of opinion, that we just don't even have time for them. Forgive us as we fail. Give us courage to keep striving, to keep pursuing, to keep struggling, to keep straining. To know you, to help others do the same. In Jesus' name, amen.